title of today's sermon is Peter Remembered. It's taken from Matthew 26, verses 69 through 27, verse 10. Would you pray with me as we begin our time together in the Word of God? Father, we thank you so much. You do bless our souls, O Lord. Help us to remember your goodness, your mercy, even when we fail, Lord. You were there to pick us up, dust us off, and put us back on the road to the abundant life. Help us, Lord, not to fail you, but to live victorious in this life that you've given us to run. Help us, Father, to live according to your principles, to let them guide us and direct us in our life's choices. May this time together we spend in the book of Matthew be a means towards that end. We ask in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Many have asked the question, because it either bothers them or intrigues them, was Judas saved or lost? They ask, how could a man walk with Jesus, talk with Jesus, minister alongside of Jesus, and live with him for three and a half years and still not be saved? It's a good question. And hopefully, our text this morning will reveal the answer to the status of Judas, whether or not he was a believer in Jesus Christ. Now, we make comparisons of people to Judas, those that we encounter in life and in churches, on the job, and even in our families. We wonder, is that person really saved or not? We ponder such questions and ask such things as, does following Jesus for a period of time equate to eternal salvation? If it does, if it does not, then what does it signify? So for the next few minutes, I'd like you to hold on to those questions and hopefully give you the answer at the end of our time together. First, we must return to the Passion Week where we left off in Matthew. It's very early on Friday morning. Jesus has been arrested. He's appeared before a small cabal at the home of the high priest. He's been interrogated and abused for his answers. Now, watching from a distance, and I hope you don't get the idea of what was in the film as the actual reality. It's a film. Gives us the setting a little bit. But watching from a distance was Peter. Now, Peter's been severely criticized for staying at a safe distance, all the while the Lord is being abused by the mob of Praetorian Guard and the Temple Guard. However, that was not Peter's greatest mistake on this occasion. Peter's biggest mistake was was in following Jesus at all. For as you know, Jesus warned Peter that he would deny him three times. And the Lord also taught that the twelve would scatter according to the prophecy of Zechariah, which we've looked at previously. All of the sheep would be scattered as Zechariah predicted and as the Lord warned. In John chapter 18, however, the Lord Jesus asked his arresters, In front of the twelve, let these, referring to the twelve, go their own way. If Peter had simply listened to the Lord's desires, and I believe a command, 
he would have never found himself in the place of failure. However, Peter wasn't alone. For along with him on the ride was young John, a teenager at the time. We learn from John's gospel that both disciples were in the courtyard of the high priest. They had not listened to the Lord's instructions. You'll recall John also said to the three, keep watching and praying that you may not enter into temptation, for the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And what was their response, you'll recall? To fall asleep. Now, Peter will in the flesh fall to those temptations that Jesus warned him about. The Lord warned him that he would be sifted by the evil one. And what was his response at that time? It was to pledge fidelity to the Lord, no matter what may come. He even argued with Jesus, the living word of God, that he would stay faithful to him. Well, let's get into these denials, Peter's denials of Jesus. As you know, Peter liked to compare himself to others. He dismissed the other 11 as being weak, unlike himself. Fall? Not me, Lord. I'll never do that. I'll die before I forsake you. Now, Matthew, as he writes this gospel, will expertly weave in and out of the text the experiences of two of the disciples. He contrasts and compares Peter and Judas. He presents to his readers a thought-provoking contrast between their failures, their confessions, and their final destinies. Judas is shown to be rejecting Jesus in front of the religious elites, while Peter is shown to deny Jesus before the religious elite's household servants. Peter is shown... uh, juxtaposed against Judas in this case. Matthew will also show the violent treatment by juxtaposing Jesus' interrogation all the while Peter's mild interrogation by the household servants. So, let's look at Peter's subsequent collapse in front of his interrogators with his three denials. Matthew again weaves these these events in and out of the participants in the denials, including Peter and the household servants, and how he is pressed, how he comes under pressure, and these denials flow from him naturally. Now, in verse 69 on page, 600 and, on page 991 of our Pew Bible, we find the beginning with Peter's first denial. His first denial. Now, Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard. This is the place, the home of the high priest. Peter's out there, as we know from other Gospels, warming his hands around the fire, which was being stoked by members of the temple guard and the household staff. He has a bird's eye view, if you will, of the open portico where Jesus is being questioned by the religious elites of Israel. The group in which Peter is in is likely talking and jesting as they all watch the goings-on behind them. Peter never thought that he would ever take part in the counsel of the wicked. But as he looks at those around him, those who are seated, he becomes quite nervous. 
So he willingly participates in their conversation, hoping that they will not recognize who he is. And on this occasion, he will have at least three opportunities to confess his relationship to Jesus Christ. But as you know, he won't do so. The backdrop to these events is, of course, the previous week, during which Jesus taught daily in the temple. Anyone in his gathering, the household servants in the temple guard, could have easily recognized Peter for who he is if, he had been at, if they had been at those public events in the temple. So as they warmed themselves on this chilly Judean night, one of them, a servant girl, we are told, suddenly notices something about Peter. He looks so familiar. She stands to her feet and she accuses Peter in front of all, you were with Jesus, the Galilean, too. Notice how specific she is in her charge. She links Peter directly to Jesus. She accuses him of being a Galilean, just like Jesus. Now, what should stand out about this accusation is her labeling of not only Peter, but Jesus as well. And in essence, she's saying he's a redneck from up north. You know, all of this is absolutely true. Jesus did spend the bulk of his formative years in Nazareth and then lived for three years on the Sea of Galilee. Some might wonder, why is that such a bad thing? Well, 700 years previous to these events, the Jewish inhabitants of the Galilee were conquered by the Assyrians. And in order to, to assimilate the Jewish population into the Assyrian Empire, they were deported and dispersed from the Galilee. And instead, the Assyrian king imported Gentiles from outside of Israel, from his kingdom, his Greek culture kingdom, into the region of the Galilees. The Assyrian king thought that if he assimilated the different groups together, they would, they would buy into the Greek culture of the day. Well, they settled in what became known as the Decapolis, the ten cities of the Galilee, and it became known as the Galilee of the Gentiles. So anyone from the region of the Galilee was looked down upon as not being fully Jewish. That meant anyone, no matter if there was only one one-thousandth of a percentage of Jewish blood, they would not be considered a full-blooded Indian. Uh, excuse me, I mean Israelite. Nor would they have been accepted by the tribes of Israel. Therefore, the Judeans considered all Galileans to be uneducated rubes from the hill country with questionable ancestry. You see, Galileans had a terrible reputation. Many of those that came from there turned out to be zealots, and those zealots incited protest marches and rights uh, against the government authorities. They, they composed such social justice groups as Gentiles' Lives Matters, Social Workers' Party of Nazareth, Move On, Dot Jew, and of course, NOG, the National Organization of Gentiles. Since Jesus from, was from Nazareth, he was considered to be one of these zealots. And as a leader of the group of 12 fellow recruit zealots, it might have been he was attempting to overthrow the Roman government. Throw into that that 11 of them were from the Galilee. 
the evidence was overwhelming that he was guilty. Just being from Galilee caused Jesus to be despised and afflicted, along with anyone who associated with him. Now, we get Peter's response to this accusation in verse 70, but he denied it. Notice, notice the important words. Before all of them, saying, I don't know what you're talking about. Things are really getting a bit uncomfortable for Peter. He's surrounded by the hostiles, so he forcefully denies that he even knows what they're speaking of. I don't know what you're talking about, young lady. But of course, Peter's denials were a lie. He and Jesus were both from Galilee. He knew what they were talking about. So he simply now ignores the young servant girl and her claim and his pretense of ignorance he was hoping would then disregard her accusation. But he's feeling the heat under this probing. So he utters his lie, he gets up, and he moves away towards the exit gate from the house of the high priest. Now we have the second denial that takes place there at the entrance or exit gate of the courtyard. This was the way that you were given access to the house of the high priest. Verse 41. When he had gone out of the gateway, another servant girl saw him and said to all those who were there, this man was with Jesus of Nazareth. Wow. Peter was really getting uncomfortable with his infamous reputation here. Why? It seems like every servant girl in the city of Jerusalem knew exactly who he was. He's trying to keep his low profile, not be noticed, and he's being pointed out everywhere he goes. So Peter is now standing in the path of sinners as he waits along with all the others to see what would happen to these events taking place on the portico right behind him. Unfortunately, this second servant girl identifies him. Now, we might say, how could that have happened? Well, maybe she saw him in the temple. Maybe it was the guilty look that was on his face, or the rural clothes he wore, or maybe it was the funny way in which he talked. She had racially profiled him, hadn't she? Whatever the reason, the casual observer could see that Peter had been with Jesus. One thing was clear, this servant girl was educated in the prejudices of the day, for she could tell who he was. He was a, he was a Nazarene. He was from Nazareth. She accused Peter of being one of his disciples. But more than that, she knows that Jesus is from the megatropolis of Nazareth. As you'll recall, Nazareth was a tiny little city, actually. And it hosted a Roman legion, which was stationed there to keep the whole area in line. The Romans, as you know, despised the Jews. All of them. That's why... Nathaniel once remarked about the region of the Galilee and Nazareth. He said to Philip, Nazareth, can anything good come from up there? They were universally despised, not only by the Romans, but by their own fellow Jews from Judea. And now here's Peter, who came from the same place that Jesus did. He was part of their group. This circle of rejection of Peter keeps getting smaller. Notice Peter's reaction to her allegation in verse 72. And again, he denied it, but this time with an oath. I don't know the man. Peter refutes the allegation. 
It's totally false. I'll even swear to it. I'll take an oath about this. I don't know the person. I don't know the man. This oath in which he takes, he's actually inviting God to bring a curse down upon him if he's lying. And obviously, Peter's denial is a lie. The purpose of the oath before these people was to try to prove his innocence to them. I don't even know him. What a hypocrite. What a hypocrite. Peter's under escalating pressure here. His public denials are getting bigger and bigger. At first, Peter simply stated that he didn't know what the girl was talking about. Secondly, then, he states, I don't even know the man. And all the while, Jesus is within earshot listening to what is taking place. I imagine Peter would have said something like this. I swear on a stack of Bibles. I'll give you a pinky swear. I'll double dog dare you. I don't know him. He denies his personal relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. And on top of that, he asked God to judge him if he's not telling the truth. If I was with him, I would have started watching out for lightning. The ultimate act of denial. I don't even know him. Now, the third denial is found beginning in verse 73. A little while later, the bystanders came up to Peter and said, Surely you are one of them, for even the way you talk gives you away. Peter slinked away from one group by the gate to another group nearby. He's now literally sitting in the seat of the scoffers. But his heavy accent gives him away for who he is. He's one of those northerners. And the southerners in Judea could tell. They could hear his his dots and does and know that he's from Chicago. They identify him as one of them. Peter's accused of being one of them. The fear whelms up in his heart and in his mind. The emotional pressure of feeling trapped, being condemned along with Jesus. Maybe he's going to be arrested. His identity has been revealed on the internet. I mean, by the way he talked. Things were getting so intense that we read in verse 74 that he began to curse and to swear, I don't know the man. In this emotional outburst, Peter reveals his inner sinful self. He's totally lost control. He could no longer be considered for eldership in the coming church because of his anger and his swearing. Peter's petrified of being condemned along with Jesus. So he doubles down on his swearing and he triple dog dares him. He begins to curse and to swear. The curse and the swear here is a Hebrew idiom which means to strengthen his disavowal. I swear to God, I don't know the blankety-blank man. And immediately, a rooster crowed. That is the very minute he said, I don't know the man, a Roman soldier, is better to understand this as, blew the trumpet known as a cock crow, which marks the 3 a.m. watch change and the 6 a.m. watch change and the 12 p.m. watch change. Peter instantly recognized his great failure. 
The one whom he said he would never forsake. The one whom he said he would die for. The one whom he loves supposedly is just thrown under the bus. He's publicly turned upon Jesus, not once, not twice, but three times. And the cock crows. The Roman watch is changing. As you know, the Lord stated that this would happen. It's now come to fruition. At the, mu- at the moment that the bugle blew, or if you want to believe it's a, a rooster, which is a dirty animal and would never have been in Jerusalem because it would have made the whole city unclean, Luke tells us that Jesus turns at that very moment and he looks at Peter, and Peter's heart breaks. And verse 75 tells us these haunting words. Peter remembered the words of Jesus. Peter remembered the words that Jesus had said before a rooster crows, you will deny me three times. I find it noteworthy that from this point forward in the book of Matthew, Peter is never mentioned again by name. As if Peter was erased. And what was Peter's reaction? We see it. He went out and he wept bitterly. Peter runs from the courtyard through the exit gate and in his humiliation he breaks down and he weeps. Who's he crying for? Jesus or himself? Well, you know the answer to that. Peter was in the wrong place at the wrong time because he had not obeyed the Lord. He willingly walked into that place of temptation, maybe out of curiosity, who knows what, and he met his greatest failure. No excuses. No alibis can be offered for his choices. He must suffer for his heinous act of betraying Jesus three times. He must suffer. But could Peter be rehabilitated? Could Peter be rehabilitated? We who believe in the grace of God affirm, surely God could rehabilitate him, use him again. The same is true for us today. Just because you even betrayed the Lord does not mean that the Lord is done with you. He will forgive and restore. You can be made whole, again, as we will see in the life of Peter, not in our text this morning, but in other places. He's made whole because of the mercy and the grace of God. So, we've examined the three denials of Jesus by Peter. I believe Matthew is, in, is intentionally juxtaposing these denials of Peter with Judas's remorse for his betrayal of Jesus. Let me show you this in chapter 27, beginning with verse 1. Now, when morning came, all of the chief priests and the elders of the people conferred together against Jesus to put him to death. Here we are, it's early morning, and as you know, only trials held during the day were legal in Israel. Even Roman trials were held during the day. Now, the Roman governor in Israel liked to go and hold his trials very early in the morning, 
So these guys are really up early because the Roman governors didn't like the heat of the day. They'd, they'd have their trials at the Bema seat, and then they'd head for the bathhouse to spend the cool uh, uh, time in, during the summer heat. Now in verse 1, the religious trial of Jesus before the full Sanhedrin is given just a very short and sweet treatment. Apparently the full 71 members of the Sanhedrin get together to affirm the decision that had been made at the preliminary hearing held in the dead of night, which we looked at previously. They tie the legal bow, if you will, on the end for this troublemaker from the Galilee. He must die. However, as you also know, they were completely powerless to implement such a ruling. So the Sanhedrin had to send Jesus to the secular authority so that he could do their dirty deed. Now they had a charge that they convicted him of blasphemy against their religion. But this charge wouldn't hold water in the secular court. So they had to trump up sorry, a totally phony charge in order to impeach Jesus. Perhaps a political crime. They could charge with charge Jesus with colluding with a dictator to overthrow the Roman powers. They sat around and they thought, what crime can we charge him with that will get Pilate's attention? The verdict was predetermined. They just needed a crime to fit the predetermined verdict. Once the governor agreed, then he could properly execute, the pun intended. Pilate famously despised religious leaders in Israel. So this wasn't going to be an easy task. If they had brought this charge of blasphemy, Pilate would have just laughed. So what could they use? Now in verse 2, we have the preparatory steps before the civil trial of Jesus. And we'll get back to that whole thing in a bit. We read, they bound him and they led him away and they delivered him to Pilate the governor. Normally, Pilate hung out at his palace, as I said, in Caesarea. But here he is in Jerusalem. He left the cool of the Mediterranean Sea and hanging out at the beach with his bros to come during Passover time to the city where he stayed at the fortress of Antonio. And he came there because he wanted to be there in case there were any problems. You see, two million, up to two million pilgrims would flood the city during the Passover. And oftentimes, zealots came along with them that caused problems for Rome. And if those problems got back to the Roman government in Rome, they could get a little bit tricky and dicey for the governor. So he came to give his little personal touch on this time of the Passover. So they would bring Jesus to see Pilate, who was at the fortress of Antonio, to see that his um, charge, secular charge that they came up with, could be brought forward and he would be executed. Now, you know that Pilate was a great military uh, general in the Roman army. He held the title of prefect, but he was appointed because of his abilities in the army to be the governor by Sejanius as a reward for the victories that he had won. Sejanius was a, a great friend of Emperor Tiberius, 
who also was a Jew hater. So we believe that Pilate was influenced by Sejanius and the attitudes of Emperor Tiberius against the Jews. He was anti-Semite. So Peter's tenure as governor of what was called then Palestine by Rome lasted from 26 AD to 36 AD. But his rule was beset with many problems. Upon his arrival, he made the first big mistake when he had the 10th Roman legion fly their Roman flags that are embossed with the emperor's image in and over the holy place at the temple. This infuriated the Jews. It was literally bringing idols into the most sacred place. Then Pilate compounded this when he had the temple treasury's money confiscated in order to build a Roman aqueduct from the hills to the temple complex. He thought the Jews should pay for the water. And if that wasn't enough, when a group of Jewish zealots were protesting in the temple courts, the temple site itself, being led by Bill Ayers, Pilate sent Roman soldiers dressed up as Jews into the crowd. And upon his signal from the overlooking fortress of Antonio, they clubbed hundreds of Jews to death right there in the courtyard of the temple. Jewish historian Flavius Josephus notes that Pilate had a great repugnance for the Jews, to say the least. So now we have a short interlude in this narrative that Matthew is weaving for us. He is juxtaposing Peter's denials with Judas's betrayal, but he had to give us the background of the religious trial and the setting for the coming civil trial. He's going to demonstrate how both Peter and Judas failed Jesus. However, Peter's failure was different than Judas's because it was only temporary, and it was accompanied or happened under great stress. Peter also shed tears of remorse and had the hope of restoration. On the other hand, Judas's betrayal was a predetermined plan. His actions were done with total clarity of thought and mind. He was under zero pressure. His actions would too result in remorse when he realized, realized the gravity of his choice. But his had lasting effects his ultimate end would be hopelessness, despair, and eventually suicide. So Matthew is intending for us, the readers, to compare and contrast these two fates of Peter and Judas. Our choices, our decisions about Jesus should be influenced by theirs. And the consequences that they suffer should guide our choices when it comes to who Christ is. We've already witnessed the betrayal of Jesus, or the betrayal of Jesus previously to this by Judas. So now he goes instantly into the consequences, beginning in verse 3. Then when Judas, and he reminds us, who had betrayed him, that is Jesus, saw that he had been condemned, so Judas must have been there somewhere near that courtyard, looking in and seeing that the pronouncement of his judgment had been made by the Sanhedrin. He had been condemned, is what he saw. He felt remorse. And he returned the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders. It's only logical that Judas followed the large crowds from the high priest's home to the, the temple area 
the hall of hewn stone, is what it was called, where the trial was held and where the results were then published for everyone to hear. When Judas heard those words that Jesus had been condemned to death, he suddenly realized the depth of his betrayal. Judas' reaction to the condemning of Jesus, however, is a bit confusing for a lot of people. Let me tell you why. They look at this inner conflict that Judas had, and they formulate an argument in which they argue that Judas actually got saved at this point. They say that he demonstrated, he evidenced in his life, life remorse. Now, that's an interesting Greek word that's used there for remorse. It's usually translated in most good modern translations as remorse. But the King James Version renders it as repent. It uses that same word and it always translates it as repent. Five times. Now, you can see behind me that the Greek word is metamolomai. As I said, it actually should be rendered as repent, uh, as remorse, but many including the King James, put it as repent. The proper understanding of it for us is remorse. Judas felt horrible about what his actions have led to. He never envisioned this outcome. However, on the other hand, what he had really hoped by his actions did not materialize either. His hope is not mentioned in the text, but we can construe from his actions what he wanted. So he feels remorse. Again, Matthew uses the Greek word metamaloia, and it's not um, metanoia, which means change of mind. So what is it? Repent or remorse? Clearly, Judas felt bad, for things did not go the way that he planned and hoped for. He was, of course, we know, hoping that there would be a military battle with the Romans led by Jesus for some mystical armies that would be raised up and that Rome would be defeated and that they would all become part of a new Judean, new Israelite nation and Judas would be made secretary of the treasury. So as we make our way through the text, please notice Judas's actions and compare them to what we call lordship salvation. Lordship salvation asserts that justification is accompanied by certain actions by the one who is being saved. The lordship proponents say that the first step in salvation is feeling sorry for your sin. Remorse. Repent. Some describe this as the willingness, just the willingness to repent. Therefore, they always turn to the King James Version to support that. But that's not what Judas is doing here. But if we continue down this path that the Lordship Gospel preaches, uh, the next step would be to right the wrongs that you've committed in your life. You repent of your sins and then you try to make restitution. Notice Judas's good works as he attempts to amend for his sinful action. He felt remorse and what did he do? He returned to the 30 pieces of silver. I don't want your filthy money. Judas's good works flow from this negative emotion that he's feeling. He was willing to even give up the money if they would just forget the whole affair. And yet, despite these terrible guilt feelings he was having, Judas, as we know, was totally unable to offload it. He attempts to return the silver. Why? Well, it didn't get him what he wanted. 
But the religious elites had manipulated Judas, his greed, his desires, and they refused to go along with his change of heart. Notice in verse 4, his plea to them was, I have, be, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. There it is, the Lordship salvationists love this. Judas admits that he's a sinner, right? He's sinned. This is his public confession of sins, right? The Lordship salvationists would say that Jesus is, Judas is right here on the right track now. His heart has been rent by the guilt of his sin, and he's now confessed it, and he's tried to make restitution for it. He's recognized his sinfulness and what he has done, and he's trying to make it right because he's recognized that Jesus Christ has innocent blood. Well, the religious elites listened to his blubbering before him. All this about his religious experience he's just had, and how do they respond to him? These wonderful religious people who, who care. They're so compassionate. They love people, don't they? I think they're all Democrats. They say, what's that to us? See to that yourself. Get out of here. It's basically what they tell him. Now, if we compare Peter's response, the misery of his denials, he weeps bitterly, to Judas's response of his betrayal of Jesus, a heartfelt remorse, it sounds a lot like the same thing to me, doesn't it to you? Both men feel really bad about what they've done. They both know they've sinned. One tries to make restitution while the other one actually doesn't do anything. Peter doesn't do anything. So really it boils down to Peter cries, but Judas takes concrete steps to deal with the results of his actions. Well, Judas bolts out of the hall of hewn stone pleads after pleading his case to the high priest and saying that Jesus was a totally innocent man. And they, we saw their response to him. It's your problem. So he goes his own way. He leaves the hall of hewn stone, and he takes the few steps that take him to the closest area that he can be to the sacred place, the place where God abides in the temple, the holy of holies. He can't make restitution to man, so what does he do? The easy and predictable solution for him was, as verse 5 says, he threw the 30 pieces of silver into the temple sanctuary. That's how we know it is the holy of holies. The word that's used there means holy of holies. And he departed, and they, then he went away. Now there's a time gap here. And he went away, and he hung himself. What was Judas doing? Obviously, he's driven by emotions. He's driven by his guilt feelings. He tries to make things right. But he comes to the realization that all he had hoped for and expected in his betrayal wasn't going to happen. And now he knows that he's not going to be able to make it right again. And I believe he blames God. He turns and he throws the money at God. And then we're told quickly that he goes out and he commits suicide. The last act of a desperate man driven by guilt and despair. He believes that the only way to get peace of mind is to end his life. Just like other suicides we see in Scripture. Remember King Saul? Another great sinner against the will 
of Gad, and Ahithophel, both suicides in the book of Samuel, both done to try to seek resolution for their guilt, feelings, and remorse. Apparently the high priest had one of his lackey Levitical priests go to the holy place and pick up the coins. And now we read in verse 9, the chief priest took the pieces of silver and said, it's not lawful to put them into the temple treasury since it's the price of blood. It's blood money. We can't put this into the temple. That would defile the temple. The hypocrites, the hypocrites, the hypocrites. This blood money was this blood money that they paid. They admit that they broke the law, and yet they say, oh, we better not do that because we might break a law. All of a sudden, they've come down with a case of the scruples. They've literally colluded together to commit murder, but they won't collude together to use dirty money. Sounds like the mafia, doesn't it? Now verse 7. They conferred together. It's a group decision. And with the money they bought, the potter's field is a burial place for strangers. Someone in this crowd of Levitical priest do-gooders spoke up. Hey guys, I got an idea. My wife and all of her do-gooding friends are tired of seeing all of those dead bodies lying around on the city streets. You know, those homeless people that have no place to live. Let's take the money. We'll buy a place. We can get rid of all those corpses. A cemetery is a perfectly good place. It's unclean. We can use unclean money to buy it. I know a place just outside the city in a valley that we can get for a song. I'll even Jew the guy down. It's a a place filled with holes because all those crazy artisans, they go out there and they dig holes to get clay from to build all those artsy pots my wife keeps bringing home from the marketplace. Get it? The whole valley's full of holes. We can fill the holes up with dead bodies. It's a win-win for everybody. We can take care of the carcasses that are stinking up the city streets. We can use the money productively. We don't break the law. And best of all, my wife will be ecstatic. You remember that old Jewish proverb by Solomon, don't you? Happy wife, happy life. And that's what they did. They bought the field known as Akadelum, or the field of blood, and they used it as the county cemetery. Little did they know that the first occupant that they would put in it would be Judas. Appropriately, according to verse 8, it was for this reason that the field has been called the field of blood to this day. The parcel of useless land, a potter's field, now became a place where they could get rid of this nuisance. So this isn't written by happenstance, by accident. Peter tells us, I'm sorry, Matthew tells us this because it fulfills prophecy in the Old Testament. Don't you love it when everything that we believe is substantiated from hundreds of years before that couldn't be manipulated or made up? We read in verse 9, then that which was spoken by Jeremiah, the prophet, 700 years before was fulfilled. And they 
Then he gives us the quote. And they took the 30 pieces of silver, the price of the one whose price had been set by the sons of Israel. That's the leaders of Israel. And they gave them for the money for the potter's field, and the Lord directed me. Here we have specific reference to potter's field, 30 pieces of silver, and the price being paid by sons of Israel. Now, most commentaries point out that this prophecy was a combination of two Old Testament texts, one from Jeremiah and another from Zechariah. I believe that the general idea was being quoted here by Matthew, and the largest proponent of this idea was Zechariah. So now let me return to the question that I began with. Was Judas saved, or was he lost? Was he a believer who was just having a really bad week? Now, those who affirm that Judas was saved point to verses like John chapter 18 and verse 9, which says this, All of this happened so that the words he had spoken would be fulfilled. I have not lost one of those you gave me. Quoting Jesus. How could Judas have been lost if Jesus never lost one? And then to affirm this, they often quote John again in chapter 6 and verse 39. All this is the will of him who sent me, again, Jesus' words, that I shall lose none of all those he has given me, but raise them up on the last day. Oh, there it is. Even though Judas betrayed the Lord and committed suicide, he will be raised up on the last day. But their best evidence, of course, comes from this text that we've just been reading in chapter 27. When Judas had betrayed him, saw that Jesus was condemned, he was seized with remorse. There it is, the lordship, salvationist justification. In return, the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priest. I have sinned. He confesses his sin, for I have betrayed innocent blood. He recognizes the sinlessness of Jesus. Many use this to support the notion that Judas was saved. So what do I say? Well, I promised you my conclusions on this, and so here they are. I do not believe Judas was saved. Judas was not a believer. Judas was a do-gooder. We're surrounded by do-gooders who filled the bankrupt churches that surround us. They're trying to merit, earn their salvation by doing things like feeling sorry for the bad things that they do and making restitution rather than what the biblical gospel tells us. The Bible does not tell us that one is justified by your confession. The Bible tells us that one is not justified by doing good things. One is not justified by recognizing Jesus' sinfulness. Even the angels, the evil ones, the demons recognize who Jesus is. All men experience remorse. All men make faulty choices, very similar to that that Judas, Judas did. But all men are not justified by their works. We are justified by grace and faith in Jesus Christ. Judas tried to merit his salvation by a change in behavior. Hey, if I turn over a new leaf, if I reform my life, Maybe God will be happy with me. He never once trusted in the free gift of eternal life through Jesus Christ. He rejected Jesus. To be saved, you must place your faith and trust 
in the person and the work of Jesus Christ alone with nothing else. Listen now, following Jesus will not save you. As John 6, 6 reminds us, many who followed him turned away. Feeling sorry for your sins will not save you. Repenting of your sins in the understanding that people have today will not save you. And certainly your good works of restitution will not save you. The only thing that will save you is putting your faith and trust in Jesus as your sin bearer. The key verse to understanding this is clear. It's found in the Gospel of John chapter 17. Jesus said that while I was with them in the world, speaking to his Father, while I was with them in the world, I kept them in thy name that thou hast givest me. And I have kept, none of them is lost, but, but, but the son of perdition. That the scriptures might be fulfilled. Jesus says that Judas is the son of perdition. Translated those same words in the book of 2 Thessalonians, the one bound for destruction. Paul pens that word. Do you really think that the Bible would talk about someone who saved as being the one doomed for destruction? I don't think so. Judas's betrayal and condemnation and end was also predicted by the psalmist. He wrote, Even my close friend, in whom I have trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. But it is you, a man of my equal, my companion, and my familiar friend. We had sweet fellowship together, walked in the house of God In return for my love, they acted as my accusers. I am in prayer. They have repaid me evil for good and hatred for my love. Appointed a man over him and let his accuser stand on his right hand. When he is a judge, let him come forth guilty and let his prayer become sin. Let his days be few and let another take his office. Judas's end was seen so many years ago by the prophets. And he lived it out just as they predicted. They didn't cause it. They didn't make him do this. God didn't make him make these choices. He did so on his own. He never experienced metanoia, a change of mind about who Jesus Christ was. He was just sorry that he caused his death. As you know, as you know, The only unpardonable sin that you can commit in this world is the sin of not believing. The sin of rejecting Jesus Christ as Savior. Judas committed that sin. Next week, as we continue our way through Matthew, we don't get a full account of the crucifixion of Jesus. No gospel writer actually gives us that. They merely tell the events of the cross and the resurrection from their own perspective. Some men, some of the writers, one in particular, likes to depict the cross in graphic terms. The nails driven into the quivering flesh, the blood spurting out and all that. But that's not really the biblical portrait that we find when we look at a composite view of the death of Christ. What we see there is the mantle of darkness coming over Israel 
for three hours as the life of Jesus is extinguished and the wrath of God is unleashed on him. The cross is literally a transaction between the Father who is in heaven and his Son who is on the cross. The cross was the altar on which the Lamb of God dies to take away the sins of the world. Matthew, however, just puts it really simply. And they crucified him. And they crucified him. Don't make the mistake that Judas did and Peter did. Don't compare yourself to other people. Judas and Peter compared themselves to others. We often do that, don't we? We compare ourselves to people around us, but we fall short when we do not compare ourselves to the Lord Jesus Christ. That can be fatal. But even when you do compare yourself and you always come up short, there's always hope. You can always be rehabilitated just as the Lord would come and rehabilitate Peter. Feed my sheep. Lead my sheep. Feed my sheep. The truth is the Lord is willing to forgive anyone, anytime, anyplace. The fallen always have a hope. The church is filled with fallen saints. Peter's mistake However, however, was his overconfidence in his flesh. He was so cocksure of himself. He would be loyal to the end. No, no way would he ever fail Jesus. And then he had a reckoning, a collision with his sinful flesh, his weak flesh. He depended on upon his own means rather than the word of God. He should have obeyed what Jesus said. He should have sought the Lord's wisdom and strength even in the death of Jesus. We would do well in heeding Peter's example and becoming less confident of yourself and more confident and dependent upon the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the most basic of all lessons to learn in the Christian life. If you desire the abundant life, abandon self-confidence and and. Nurture dependence upon Jesus and his word. You can reform your life every day and it won't be successful. The only life that's worthwhile is the one that's lived in harmony with the will and the purpose of God. Obviously, Peter failed at this and Judas never did. Only faithfulness. Only faithfulness to his word and person can save us and keep us and make us right to enjoy the abundant life. Like Peter, like Peter, like Peter, remember the word of Jesus. Remember the words of Jesus. Remember the words of Jesus. Let us pray. Father, thank you for these lessons from Scripture. We thank you for the lessons from Peter's life, the lessons from Judas's life. Lord, help us to be learners. Help us to be appliers of these truths. Help us to walk in the light of your word. Father, help us not to depend on ourselves, on our flesh, on our thinking. Confidence is the beginning of fall. Let us have our confidence in you and your words. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.